Gruden from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, synthetic genomes and rescuing parrots. In addition, we'll be joined by Randall Packard, who will discuss malaria research. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Rock Science Show. I'm Frank Lane. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Uh, all systems are go. <laughs> it's amazing. You have such resilience. My new heart, liver. You need that new heart after Mola Ram rips it out. <laughs> <laughs> Should never have gone for the stones. So, Charles, how is your new artificial, or is it a real heart you have? I'm not really sure. People say I'm devoid of feeling. <laughs> So you're not worried that it could have been trafficked from somewhere else? I always get mine off eBay, so okay. I'm pretty sure they're trafficked from somewhere else. Human organs are not the only things that are being trafficked out there. Right now, the exotic animal trade is a very big source of trafficking. Uh, a lot of collectors are very interested in exotic birds and yes, animals. Yes, One of these are the African gray parrots. And uh, are they very rare? In fact, they're getting more rare because <laughs> of trafficking to the extent that you know they could be endangered. Oh, really? Okay. So Cameroon, one of the countries in Africa, recently rescued 1,200 parrots that were being exported to either you know, Mexico or the Bahrain. Before, they had a legal quota on these birds, but then when the avian flu broke out, there was a complete ban. But now that the ban's been lifted, all sorts of illegal activities occurring right now. Hmm. So something to be aware of here to these exotic pets. Make sure you know where they come from or it's not causing the uh, population to be endangered. Uh, make sure you get the eBay seal of approval. <laughs> I'm not sure what's the best way to certify that or not, but... <laughs> Just ask the bird. It's a parrot, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it could tell you. They can talk. Sometimes they talk too much and they need to be silenced. <laughs> Indeed. This is ongoing news. Maybe you want to consult with your uh, pet store to make sure everything's... Uh... <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they know. <laughs> All right, well, if those parrots manage to go extinct, perhaps we might be able to synthesize them from scratch. You mean, like, for their DNA sequence? Exactly, and in fact, that's what some researchers have done with a bacterium, at least, Mycoplasma genitalium. Oh, wow. That's my favorite bacterium. <laughs> of course. And it's a parasitic bacterium that lives in the human urogenital tract. This was actually work done by the famous head of the Solera sequencing effort, J. Craig Venter. Is uh, it just the guy who thinks he's God? Look, what scientist that's not media-hungry and power-crazy doesn't think they're God? <laughs> it comes with the territory. <laughs> anyway, so Venter and his colleagues have developed a p technique for um, replacing the uh, genome of this particular bacterium. And the big problem was that DNA, very large sequence of DNA, are fragile. So the trick was how do you do it? And what they did is they started sequencing small chunks of DNA and then just attaching them together until they got the whole genome. Oh, okay. They've done this in yeast. Uh, it's been published in Science. But they've yet to actually show that when they put the DNA back into the actual bacteria, that it can actually start working again. So that's the next step. Mm -hmm. Fascinating work uh, suggests that Venter's getting closer to being God. <laughs> Wasn't the other guy the human genome? Now he's all for uh, intelligent design, right? Uh, not necessarily intelligent design, no. This is uh, Francis Conyers referring to, right? Right. Yeah, we had him on the program a yeah. lot. No, he just believes that science and religion can coexist. Okay. Can't we all just get along? <laughs> yeah. Again, published in a recent edition of Science. 
And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show you're listening to. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Randall Packard will join us to discuss malaria research. So stay tuned. Science show. Well, malaria continues to be a major risk to public health in various parts of the world, particularly poorer tropical regions. Although much effort has been focused on eradicating the disease, it continues to affect human society. How has the disease affected various parts of the world and what are its current effects? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Randall Packard. Professor Packard is the chair and William H. Welch Professor of the History of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University, where he's currently the director of the Institute for the History of Medicine. Author of numerous scholarly articles and books on the subject, his latest work, The Making of a Tropical Disease, A Short History of Malaria, explores the medical and societal impacts of malaria. Dr. Packer, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thanks for having me. Well, it's certainly a very fascinating issue that you've written about here, and I think a lot of people are familiar with malaria as a disease, but many people might not actually know uh, what its etiology is. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, malaria is caused by the invasion of the bloodstream by a malaria parasite, which is injected by female Anopheles mosquitoes. Um, Once within the bloodstream, it undergoes a sexual division, and every time it invades red blood cells, the blood cells burst, and that causes this sort of characteristic fever and chills that goes along with malaria. So the actual epidemiology of the disease is very much affected by the availability of infected mosquitoes within the local environment. And I think most people associate malaria with relatively tropical regions, but in your book you describe that it's prevalent throughout the world. Yeah, well, malaria probably originated in Africa and Southeast Asia, By the 18th century, it was spread over large areas of the world. Uh, Malaria existed into Canada. As late as 1922, there was an outbreak of malaria in Archangel, which is about 200 kilometers south of the Arctic Circle. So it does have a very wide distribution, but over the course of the 18th, 19th century, the disease basically disappeared from much of the northern hemisphere. And it did so largely because of economic and social transformations rather than any direct effort to eliminate the disease. During that same period, economic and political transformations in the tropical parts of the world, which were largely under colonial administration, actually prevented peoples from developing in ways which would eliminate the disease and in some ways actually increase the uh, epidemiology, increase the spread of the disease. I see. I mean, that's actually quite fascinating. One of the themes of your book is that malaria is uh, very much a societal economic disease and not just a medical one. Yeah, I mean, I think people underestimate the extent to which malaria is tied into social and economic conditions that's not thought of as a classic social disease like tuberculosis 
but it is much more identified with mosquitoes and parasites and with tropical environments. Uh, and that's largely because since the end of the 19th century, that's exactly how the biomedical or the medical and, and public health community have dealt with it, is by attacking parasites and attacking mosquitoes. But during that same period, many of the same people who were involved in those understood that there was a real link between malaria and development. I see. So what, what are the efforts or how do people fight malaria in a region? Well, historically, a lot of the efforts to control malaria had to do with one of two things. Either you attack the parasite, and early on that was with quinine, and later with derivatives of that like chloroquine and newer drugs like mefloquine. So you actually treat patients and attack the parasite. Alternatively, you attack the mosquito. And early on, that was done by eliminating breeding sites. Later, with the development of pesticides such as DDT, they were attacking the mosquitoes, the adult mosquitoes themselves. The point of all of this is to really interrupt the cycle of transmission which occurs between, between humans and the mosquito by either attacking the parasite or attacking the mosquito. Why have some countries been able to do this uh, very effectively and others not? Well, a lot of conditions come into play here. I mean, I think there is clearly climatic conditions which encourage or discourage the ability to bring malaria under control. In many of the temperate regions of the world where malaria no longer exists, malaria was a kind of unstable disease, that is, it was seasonal, and that there were long periods where the mosquito population was not eliminated, but certainly greatly reduced by colder weather. And in those areas, efforts to eliminate the vector, the mosquito, were more easily achieved than in tropical areas where, in fact, you have the conditions which allow for the breeding mosquito for much longer periods of time. But aside from that, you also have very different degrees or different patterns of economic and social development. And so the conditions which are really today driving malaria in much of Africa, for example, have a lot to do with overall poverty, both um, national poverty and individual poverty. They have to do with ongoing civil disturbances and civil wars and the problem of refugees. Even the problem of HIV-AIDS plays into this as well. But a whole series of conditions, including patterns of development, which in fact have worked to increase the prevalence of mosquitoes in some areas, all of these have worked against efforts to eliminate malaria by attacking mosquitoes and parasites. In some sense, it's almost a, a vicious cycle that poor countries tend to have greater incidences of these diseases, and yet it's the disease that almost keeps them in sort of a, a poorer state. Well, I think it is clearly true that malaria contributes to ill health, that on an individual family level, it can create adverse economic conditions. The extent to which it is a major driver of underdevelopment in Africa, I think, has probably been overextended or over-accentuated and I think is probably less important than, than many other of the factors that are contributing to Africa's underdevelopment. Just to take, for example, if you look at the impact of malaria as it's estimated on GNP for Africa by Jeffrey Sachs and, and others, is roughly 1% per year of the GDP. But if you look at the impact of cotton subsidies, for example, on an economy like that of Zambia, it has exactly the same impact on its economy. That is a 1% decline. That is cotton subsidies that are paid in the United States to farmers, which allows them to dump cheap cotton onto the international markets, which then drives down the prices 
of cotton. And so countries which depend on cotton as a major uh, source of revenue lose revenue. So what I'm saying is that, it's, yeah, malaria does contribute to economic underdevelopment to some degree, but it would be wrong to focus on that. And it's important to see what the other factors are at play there. I see. So do you think it's really a, a lack of political will then that keeps the disease from actually becoming controlled in the regions? I think it's political will in a sense that on many parts, the role the political will plays is making sure that investments, financial investments are made in, in bringing about a reduction in morbidity and mortality. Historically, certainly in places like Africa, which have very few resources, they relied on external funding for malaria control programs and still do. The problem is that historically that source of income, that source of supply for malaria control has not been consistent and that at certain points in time people lose interest in it, support goes down and malaria comes back. Right now we're in a period where there are massive resources being poured into malaria and that's a great thing. The question is can that be sustained and for how long can it be sustained? The better alternative in my mind is to provide a way in which these countries can in fact gain the resources so that they can support their own malaria control programs and so individuals can in fact be able to protect themselves, that they can buy nets, that they can buy the medicines, that they can afford to access health care. That is a much more logical way of going about controlling malaria than for us to keep funneling money into buying nets and drugs. I see. So in, in some sense, malaria is rather a symptom of poor economic conditions rather than... Uh, well, certainly affected and shaped by yeah. poor economic conditions. Right, right. Uh, one of the other interesting themes in your book is, of course, how malaria is tied to many wars as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, warfare affects malaria control uh, or malaria in a number of ways. One, it, it obviously undermines any kind of health system that you find in a country, and specifically can undermine efforts to control malaria. It disrupts agricultural systems, which can result in the creation of conditions which foster the breeding of mosquitoes, which then encourage uh, the spread of malaria. It also produces refugees in large numbers. Uh, if you take a map of the distribution of malaria across the world and you superimpose on that a map of refugee populations and you superimpose a map of warfare, they're more or less coterminous. Now, it's a complex relationship among these things, but the reality is that warfare does contribute to malaria and refugees is a major problem in terms of malaria. The World Bank estimated that for every 1,000 refugees that moves into an area where malaria is endemic, you get 1,400 new cases of malaria in those countries. The largest killer of children in refugee camps in Africa has been malaria. These conditions, which continue to foster civil disturbances, violent civil war, and refugee populations, are all making it very difficult to bring malaria under control. Well, so I, I guess most people would be wondering, what are the efforts now at a global scale or large scale that are trying to control these outbreaks? In terms of malaria control, there is a major campaign underway which began in 2000 with Rollback Malaria. And Rollback Malaria is a multilateral partnership in which you have the World Bank, you have WHO, you have a number of multilateral organizations, bilateral organizations like USAID, the President's Initiative for Malaria, whole series of funding organizations and aid organizations along with national governments that have come together that dedicated themselves to greatly reducing the incidence of malaria or the burden of malaria and they were supposed to initially reduce the burden of malaria by 50 percent by 2005 and now that's passed and by another 50 percent or by 70 percent in total by 2010. 
And basically, I should say that the ways in which this is being done is largely through the distribution of bed nets, the distribution of new medications, particularly distributed to women who are pregnant in order to prevent them from getting malaria and producing low-worth birth weight babies, and also aimed at making sure that children with fevers are seen within 24 hours and treated effectively for malaria. So these three strategies, which are part of rollback malaria, have been applied with hundreds of millions of dollars being funded by these organizations. The fact that it didn't achieve their goals by 2005 led to a rethinking of this and what is now a sort of booster program, which is really accelerating the amounts of money going into this, money coming from the Gates Foundation, from the World Bank, from the Global Fund for AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. And the goal here is to be able to demonstrate that with enough money and enough will, it's possible to actually greatly eliminate malaria. And the goals that they're being set out for countries like Zambia are actually bringing these morbidity and mortality down by 80%. And they're making substantial progress doing this. But the real question is how long can this actually be sustained? In a country like Zambia, there's clearly recognized that with the resources available in the country, if the donor or agencies left, the malaria control program simply wouldn't be able to be sustained. So that leads to the question, how do you actually sustain it? And I think that's the real question we have to face at this point. Hmm. Uh, So do you think it's just maybe encouraging economic development in the region then? Well, I think that that needs to go hand in hand. I mean, it's easy to sit here and say, well, you know, need to wait for the revolution before you can do anything. I don't think that's what we're talking about. I think what we need to be doing is funding these programs so that we can, in the short term and middle term, greatly reduce the morbidity and mortality burden that malaria imposes on the countries and where it exists. But at the same time, we need to find ways that are going to allow these countries to sustain control, which are going to allow individuals to be able to uh, protect themselves and to buy nets and to do things they need to do in order to prevent getting malaria. I mean, a wealthy person living in Africa, yes, they are at risk, but there are much less risk than someone who, in fact, doesn't have the resources to buy bed nets or to treat themselves with prophylactics or to get treatment when they get sick. How much of an issue is education among the people about preventative uh, issues? I think there's actually an important component here that early on in rollback malaria was not particularly well developed. The particular initiatives that are part of rollback malaria all of which involve some kind of behavioral modification. People have to be taught how to use nets and how to use them properly, how to retreat them, and they need to learn about how to respond to children with fevers to get them to the healthcare system. Pregnant women need to be taught about these particular kind of interventions. But I think it's wrong to say this is just simply a question of, of education because I think in many cases people don't take their children to healthcare systems, healthcare clinics, because the clinics don't exist, they're in poor quality, or they're charging user fees which prevent them from actually gaining access to them. So I think education plays a role and the demand side of this needs to be taken seriously. But it's also important to recognize that there are, in fact, economic barriers, social barriers that also may be in play here that need to be eliminated. Mm, What about on the medical front? Are there developments of new types of drugs that uh, might also help the fight for the disease? The most promising thing at the moment is artemisinin, and artemis, which is based on a Chinese drug that is being used in combination with other anti-malarial drugs in what are called ACTS or artemisinin combination therapies, which have shown to be tremendously effective in treating falciparum malaria, which is the most deadly form of malaria. And the theory here is that, as with the tuberculosis, whenever you use a single drug, there is the real potential that 
people will develop resistance or the parasites will develop resistance to it. By using more than one drug at once, you reduce that possibility. And this seems to be quite effective. The problem, of course, is that ACTs are very expensive. On the order of $4.50 a tablet compared to $0.30 cents for chloroquine or $0.10 cents for chloroquine. Uh, now, chloroquine is not very useful anymore since resistance has developed over wide areas of the world. But you can see the problem here is that you're getting more effective drugs, but there's a real challenge here of, of getting the drugs down in price or alternatively subsidizing them, which is what's going on now, but then the question of how you sustain those subsidies. So in the long run, you need to be able to develop drugs that are cheap and accessible to those populations who are most at risk and those are, are the most vulnerable and poor populations. Mm-hmm. Well, that's quite a challenge. Yeah. Um, well, having looked at the history of malaria, what are your feelings about its past, its present, and its future? Well, I think they're linked because you can learn a lot from the past in terms of thinking about how we deal with it today. I think a lot of malaria was developed because of improvements in economic and social development over large areas of the world. And I think what that teaches us is that while that is more difficult to achieve in an area in which you have the kinds of malaria that you have and the kinds of transmission conditions that you have in places like tropical Africa, it nonetheless is true that people in Africa need to have the opportunity to grow out of malaria in the same way that peoples in the northern hemisphere did. And by that I mean they need, as I said before, to have the opportunities to have the resources so they can protect themselves from getting sick. And so there's a real lesson here in terms of what we need to do as we move forward in trying to save people's lives in the short term and and then provide them with the opportunities to save their own lives in the long run. I think maybe a lot of people might be curious if there's anything that they can do to uh, help this effort. Well, I think there's a lot of opportunities to provide support for various NGO organizations that are working with malaria and, and trying to develop programs to deal with malaria in Africa in particular, but other parts of the world as well but also in terms of mobilization of support, encouraging their congressmen and senators to continue supporting funds for malaria control, the president's initiative, the global fund. All of these things need continual support. And in a world where there's multiple needs that are increasing, it is more and more difficult, particularly for people in this country that don't have really any understanding or experience with malaria, to keep them to support this. So I think, you know, there is a kind of political activism that can that can also be brought into to bear here. Right. I think raising awareness is a part of that. There. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, Dr. Packard, I do want to thank you very much for a fascinating discussion uh, about your book, The Making of a Tropical Disease, A Short History of Malaria. Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. And you're just listening to Dr. Randall Packer discussing malaria research. This is the Brookie Rock Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Man walks down the street. It's a street in a strange world. Maybe it's the third world. Maybe it's just first time around. Doesn't speak language. Holds no currency. He is a foreign man. He is surrounded by the sound, the sound. Cattle in the market. Scatterlings and orphanages He looks around, around He sees angels in the architecture Spinning in infinity He says, Amen, hallelujah If you would be my bodyguard
We're ready to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic pestilent or benign. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're pestilent or benign and maybe a little reason why. Uh, are you ready to play the game? Sure. Okay, here we go. Pestilent or benign, person number one, Donald Trump. <laughs> He's probably pestilent because of the way he clogs up the airways. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, number two is uh, Microsoft founder Bill Gates. It's hard to put him in between those two because I think he's benign, but I think he's much more positive than benign. And I think that what he's doing is absolutely critically important. The one thing I would say, though, that, that sort of aims not at the pestilent, but as you know, something that might be altered is the really hard and central reliance he places on technology, particularly in a problem like malaria, as we just discussed, that there are other things that need to be done. But, but I certainly wouldn't say he was pestilent in any kind of way. <laughs> well, I guess uh, his foundation is really doing some good there. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, number three is Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil. Pestilent. <laughs> Again, clogs up the airways. Please, stop. Doing more harm than good. Right. Uh, number four, Senator from New York, Hillary Clinton. Well, I would say benign, but again, this, this is a very tricky one, but I think that it's certainly not pestilent. That's, that's certainly not the case. Okay, well, perhaps number five here, the President of the United States, George Bush. Yeah, definitely on the pestilent side. I mean, it's just, I don't even know where to begin. And I'm sure most of your listeners fill this one in. <laughs> All right, well, uh, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing the game. And, of course, talking about the book, which, again, is The Making of a Tropical Disease, A Short History of Malaria. Dr. Packer, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you so much. All right, bye-bye. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks, and now here's Mr. Connery with the answer to this week's question of the week. Yes, thank you very much, sir, Frank. It's a pleasure to be on the Crocs. Isn't this the Grocs? Yes, Grocs. That's like grits, right? That's right. It's like what you have. Grocs! <laughs> so you have a question for me, little man, or do I have to rip your head off and spit down your throat? <laughs> and I'll do it to you. Okay, old man. The day okay. is mine! <laughs> Can I get an S-word? I, I do actually have a question. Yes. What's a... Epigenes. All the epigenes. In fact, very little S's in the epigenes, but in fact, in your genetic code, lad, that determines the production of proteins, but epigenetics, that's the stuff that acts on the genes to control that expression. Wow, it acts on the genes. That's right. Just like I'm going to act when I tear your arms off limb from limb and feed them to you down your throat. Okay, old man. Uh, <laughs> you look pretty tough today. Yes, well, it was a pleasure to be on your program. Thank you very much there, Frank. All right. Thank you for joining the show again. Yes, I hope to be back soon. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. Berkeley Grox, I'm Franklin. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.